We're gonna play a little rock and roll right now. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll music. Rock and roll. 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 Rock your weekly celebration of all things rock and roll. My name is Don DiMuccio. And later on in the show, we'll be talking to a most ubiquitous presence on the Rhode Island arts and entertainment scene for well over four decades, Rudy Cheeks. But first, let me introduce you to today's co-host, an established songwriter, guitarist, sideman, frontman, and every man for every occasion, Mr. DJ Lauria. Don, how you doing today? It's great to talk to you. Great to have you. Thanks so much for having me here. So uh, I've, I've heard... I don't know if I should give this away, but I've heard one of the episodes of your show already, and I'm loving it. Well, thank you. I think that you're a great voice to have on our uh, our local scene, talking about and talking with uh, the people around here, and and I just can't wait for this to uh, go public. Thank you very much. Very kind words, indeed. You know, people who may not know who you are, why don't you tell them a little bit about what you've been doing over the last thirty years or so? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I have been in the uh, Rhode Island music scene literally for that amount of time. Started with a band called uh, Range of Motion in the late 80s through uh, Ted Stevens' band. I believe Teddy is uh, an upcoming guest or perhaps by the time people hear this will have been a previous guest on this podcast. The DJ Loria band. Uh, which was and uh, which was my main thing and an original group that uh, uh, you know toured and released uh, several albums and singles, singles, cassette singles back when that was technology. Kids don't know what that is. I know that's one of the absolutely brilliant moves that we made. Let's embrace a technology that no one wants and make that <laughs> the way that we distribute our music. It's exactly. Um, that was over about a ten year period. I've also done uh, an awful lot in the. Um, uh, in the cover band circuit, uh, playing with uh, several different wedding bands, which was actually great fun and uh, better money than the originals brought in, for sure. It's very hard sometimes to find something that you can parlay into a living. Absolutely. I think one of the things you've done is found some great cover bands that aren't... Sometimes there's a bad rap for cover bands. It can be a little cheesy. It can be... You've done it in a completely different way. Talk a little bit about some of those groups that you've been involved with. Oh, sure. Thank you very much. I um, One of the things that was always super important to me was that uh, I, I make a living as a musician doing you know, whatever that required. And so playing covers was one way of doing that. I've also always taught. And, and uh, in fact, uh, one side gig I had, I'll just mention quickly, was playing as an accompanist for dance classes with uh, Dan- uh, Chance to Dance, which is a group here in Rhode Island that goes into schools, elementary schools all over and teaches children just, you know, basic movement stuff. They put on a big concert every year. Hmm. And I was, I was proud to be part of that, too. Sure. That, was, that was great fun. But the cover bands, especially the wedding band circuit, was a lucrative but also just super fun way. In some ways, the pressure was off because... I, I didn't have to be the front man all the time, and I didn't have to book all the gigs and uh, w- deal with club owners and and that whole 
just rabbit hole of of convincing people that you know we're already supplying the music and entertainment and doing so much but you need us to supply your your customers as well this is mm-hmm. crazy uh the um uh, the weddings however have a different sort of tension and pressure to them because if you make a mistake you have ruined someone's wedding and i'm exaggerating <laughs> but depending upon who you're talking to i've done it before ruined the wedding. <laughs> i have done it before yeah it's uh you talk about pressure yeah yeah it's tough it's it's it, so it's so it's different in that sense but uh uh, those are super fun. And one thing that I used to do as uh, just my own entertainment is uh, I would blog the wedding toasts because uh, it's one of those. I've wondered this for a long time, whether or not this is almost this this infinite circle where uh, we, we've had movies mm-hmm. that have shown us the the um, embarrassing or or just horrifying wedding toast. Right. And people have seen those. And so uh, do they see those and say. Well, but I need to go do a wedding toast. I just won't make mine like that. (laughs) And then in so doing, because they're not public speakers, they inadvertently create more of these wedding toasts and it just goes around in a circle. Uh, So some of the ones that, that we heard over the years were absolutely insane. And if you think that it's only a movie trope, uh, that someone will get up and talk about the groom's former girlfriends. Oh. I can assure you that that is not the case. I've heard it happen m- multiple times. We did a wedding once where they kept saying, you know, you guys are going to be going on right after the toast. Okay. So, you know, we're kind of waiting in the wings. And Dave, I kid you not, 52 minutes later, <laughs> and having the police called. You, like you said, you can't make this stuff up, and people think we're exaggerating. When you work in a band five, six nights a week for 20-some years, 30 years, you see it all. You oh. see all aspects of the human race, and um, no better example than at a wedding. Okay, so I'll, I'll, let me share a couple of things with you. So, so one of the um, one of the worst toasts, that I ever heard. And this is trying to go a little bit off the whole, ah, the grill. I can't believe he ended up with you kind of toast. But mm-hmm. uh, there was one where the maid of honor got up. And by the way, this is also a thing that both the maid of honor and the, the best man almost get into a competition as to who's going to do the more personal. Can I also tell people you're toasting the couple? This is just from me. I'd like to give a little recommendation based on someone who has sat through so many of these for so many years. Feel free. You're supposed to be treating the couple uh, to to, um, uh, the love of the people in the room, not standing there talking about what that person means to you. Right, right. And yet that's what they all end up being. Sure. So there was one time where uh, the maid of honor gets up and um, she, you could tell that she thought that this was just phenomenal material. And so she says, um, you know, uh, um, Billy and, uh, and Josie have been, they've, they've been kind of living in sin for a while, you know, everybody. <laughs> I know you all know that, but I figured I'd just mention it because there's something that you might not know about it. And so now the band's ears are perked up because we're like, oh, this is going to be good. She said they've been renovating the house that they're living in. And, uh, you know, part of renovating an old house is redoing the bathroom. So you might think to yourself, well, what's interesting about that? Well, what I thought was really interesting was that for a while, they didn't have a toilet. 
And so what? you start to get the general uneasiness yeah. in the room like, oh, no. So, yeah, they don't have a toilet. So what they did have was a bucket. And so I had questions. Exactly what was the bucket used for? Was it number one and number two? How long did the bucket last? Who was it who had to dump the bucket? When the bucket was full, did it have to get cleaned out oh, afterwards? God. Whose job was it to clean the bucket? And she went on and on about the bucket. And uh, at the end, she gives them a Tupperware. And it wasn't even a bucket. This was the thing that maybe made it even more perfect was that she, she wanted to present them with a bucket in honor of them not having a toilet, probably for like a day or two, but this girl went on and on about it. Um, and she couldn't even come up with a bucket. She hands them a, a Tupperware pan. Oh, for crying. <laughs> and so obviously at this point, there's oh, oh, one other quick one was uh, uh, the best man who uh, went on and on talking about the uh, groom in such a sense that it was clear that he had unresolved issues about their relationship. And it was so uncomfortably like, I can't believe you married her instead of me that we just kind of didn't play afterward. <laughs> he finished <laughs> up his toast and it was like, hey folks, we're going to take 10 minutes and we'll be right back. <laughs> Everyone just sort of had to reset. Right. It was terribly uncomfortable. Everyone could digest the information. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as bad as the bucket though. That a bucket is going to stay with me for a long time. That's uh, I, I, as I said, I had blogged them all, and uh, when I was blogging them, it was on MySpace. So yet again, embracing technology that is long since uh, extinct. But I did manage to salvage the uh, blogs before MySpace just deleted everything that happened before 2015. Hmm. So I, I have them on my current website as sort of a historical artifact. Plug that website. DavidLoria.com. What a coincidence. I, I, I'm, I'm a clever guy that way. Very, very, very. Now, you know, they say those who can do and those who can't teach, well, they never met you because you do and teach. <laughs> to me, music education is so very important. And we went to high school about 30 years ago, more or less. Mm -hmm. And I think we had a very healthy public school music program. And it was certainly as important as the sports programs were. Um, today, not so. So talk a little bit about music education and what it means to you and what you've been doing on that score. So first of all, I am uh, currently, in addition to still gigging and recording and that sort of thing, but my main job now is that I am the choral director at Mount Hope High School in uh, Bristol. It's a regional school, so it's Bristol and Warren together. I am incredibly fortunate, first of all, to have the job, but second of all, to be in a uh, district where music really is valued, and supported. Uh, that's not the case for uh, many of my peers, unfortunately. I think part of it is that there's such a great tradition of music thanks to, honestly, the Bristol Fourth of July Parade, which is such a, a touchstone for the, the community. And uh, the marching band and all of the, the music that, that leads up to that. Mm -hmm. So uh, at that school, I uh, teach two choirs as well as uh, electronic music. Uh, we have uh, digital audio classes where we um, kind of teach students how to create music on computers, which is how most people do it nowadays. Sure. 
And I uh, lucked out this year that I'm actually teaching a guitar class for the first time, which is just crazy considering guitar has been my, my main instrument, my original uh, first love. Right. Uh, going back to the time that I was 12, um, in my years of teaching, this is the first year that I'm actually teaching classroom guitar at school. And um, I mean, I love every minute of it. It's fantastic. But one of the things that I think people don't always take into account, and here's my pitch uh, to everyone who happens to hear this is sure. that we we see where um, STEM is is highly um, supported and pushed as this is what schools need to be doing now, and there's truth to it. But when you speak to people at college level, they will tell you that frequently uh, teaching technology and 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 sometimes even uh, teaching trying to teach specific content in the sciences and maths uh, the stuff becomes outmoded in five years right and what they want more than anything is people who know how to learn and who are creative mm -hmm. which are two things that the arts absolutely prepare you for and sure. i feel that it is so short-sighted that school districts cut back on their music programs when the music programs are the things that give people the expanded uh, thought process that they need to be successful in college and and uh, beyond. Well, forget cut back. Some districts have eliminated, and that's just a sin as far as I'm concerned. Not so much around here, but I think around the country I've heard stories where it's just... Sure. It's and, and by doing that, you're also taking away the reason that uh, many students go to school in the first place. Right. Let's be honest. Uh, there are, are plenty of, of uh, young people who would drop out were it not for uh, their involvement, either in sports or music and the arts. Those are the things that keep them there. And to take that away, you're taking away their main reason for going to school. I know. Now, music isn't as, I don't want to say important, but it's there was a good 50 year chunk of time where if you were a teenager whether you were listening to rock and roll or disco whatever the hell it was it was the soundtrack to your life not so much today do you find that the kids are embracing it as much or is it a different mindset how does it so they absolutely i don't think anything has changed in terms of that feeling of this is my music these are my songs these are my uh, artists who who are are important to me. I think that all of that is there. Okay, it's probably, and and this is going to sound strange, but it's probably closer to the 1950s in the terms of like the 50s were were more about the the singles, mm -hmm. and uh, you know 45 RPM singles were right. you know really how so much music was transferred, and obviously that's not the technology that we use now, but the internet. I think supports more that idea of here's a great song, here's another great song, here's another great song. So less the concept of the album, which is more of a like 70s rock construct anyway. Sure. But more of the, you know, here's a great song and here's another one and you make up your playlists and, 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 and that's what you consume. Uh, they do care just as much as we did. They just care about a different style of music. I think it's just that I'm old and I'm seeing it through old eyes and we are looking no, back. We, yeah. Of course we are. I will tell you, well, here's a, you'll love this anecdote. I, I was, um, uh, I was playing guitar in between classes 
a while back when we actually still had school. And I was, uh, I don't necessarily play a lot of guitar because the demands of my job are, are different. I'm, you know, teaching chorus. I don't, I'm not going to have a guitar in my hand for that. But um, for whatever reason, this day, I'm just sort of jamming around a little bit. One of my students comes up and, and says, she's Miss Loria. That's, that's kind of cool. Um, I didn't know you played like that. And I said, no, you know, Zach, my, my uh, guitar was actually my first love. And, and uh, honestly, all I wanted when I was your age was to, um, you know, play, play guitar in a, in a band. And um, he kind of looked at me for a second. He's like, ah, oh, wow, you must really love it because, I mean, it's not like playing guitar could get you rich or famous or anything. What? <laughs> and if wow. you are of a certain age, that sounds insane. Yeah. Because we grew up thinking the way to rich, rich and, and fame, fame was to be in a rock band and possibly, you know, very often be the guitarist in a rock band. But he's absolutely right for the music that is uh, the music of our society nowadays. I mean, you think about the fact that hip hop barely has guitar in it. Right. And, and has been the pop music of not just our country, but most of the world for the past 30 years. I think he is valid and saying like you know playing guitar ain't going to get you anywhere so wow great that you love it although you do have to say that that is a very american centric kind of attitude because rock and roll is still a major part of british uh, charts it's still in europe oh, it's the, still the most the, uh, the most popular in, instrument right. in the world right uh, you know fender sells an awful lot of of uh entry-level strats to this day it's not like people don't play guitar right but but it was interesting that that his take was yeah but that's not that's not what you hear you know that's whether that's for old music or what have you i'm not really sure but um you know it was an interesting reaction well like i mentioned earlier we're gonna have rudy cheeks on and yeah you grew up listening to his various bands the young adults i would imagine you know you and i came up uh, in the late 80s, and we just missed sort of the, the golden age in Providence, I've always thought. Sure. You know, at the, at the time that we came up, you could still hear music in clubs every night, which was great, but uh, they didn't pay those bands. <laughs> and as you know, because how many nights did you play uh, for the, the door sure. on like a Tuesday at the last Was it that first saloon? year or two? Yeah. Oh, I, I certainly did plenty of them myself. And, and so in that sense... Even at that time, we were kind of coming to bands like uh, the Young Adults and uh, the Schemers and the Probers and and all of the the earlier Rays, yeah, of course, uh, all of the earlier music that came and, and uh, really creative stuff that was happening in Providence, kind of in the early '80s. Yeah, we missed it a little bit. Now, I came to the Young Adults. I'm, I'm uh, the Schemers. I knew about because they were just on the radio so much more uh, locally. Uh, but the young adults I came to, honestly, when Complex World, the movie, came out. And um, it, I don't know. <laughs> it's probably another one of those uh, references that absolutely nobody knows. But mm. when uh, when Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel closed down, what was their, I believe, second location, but was one of their classic locations. And we didn't know that they were going to come back. They, as, as sort of an uh, honor to the history of the place, they filmed this movie uh, literally around it and so many of the bands who had been important to that location and to that time in in this state 
uh, were part of it. So anyway, the young adults were, were, were in there. And I got the soundtrack and was blown away with the, the combination of great songwriting and wise assery. <laughs> I, I just couldn't believe it. This was fantastic stuff. And, and the song Complex World to get on the radio a little bit. But um, I think I mentioned to you uh, one time that uh, Meeting Girls was one that just dropped my jaw. Uh, because it was so deadpan and yet so absolutely hysterical at the same time. I mentioned the band Range of Motion that I was in. I, I think that in retrospect, and, and I didn't really realize it at the time, but we were pretty heavily influenced by that attitude, if not necessarily the music itself. <laughs>
Our guest today is a man who apparently hasn't figured out what he wants to do when he grows up. Musician, comedian, writer, DJ, talk show host, raconteur, whatever the hell that means. Please welcome to the It's Only yeah, Rock I think raconteur is just a storyteller, I think, that's all. You, you, you talked right over the opening, Rudy. You're killing me here. The great Rudy Cheeks. Hi, Rudy. How are you? Hi, Don. I'm okay. Well, I'm not okay, but I'm I'm here. I'm alive, you know, at this particular time. This isn't live, so, so you know, when people hear this, it might be, I might not be alive, so who knows? On that maudlin note, my first question, who the hell is Rudy Cheeks? Well, I'm Bruce McCray is my real name, and uh, that was my birth name. And I made, the, well, the name Rudy Cheeks, uh, I made up after being, well, there's a long story behind that. Uh, I, got I was rehearsing with my first band, the uh, Fabulous Motels. There were these women. They were they were what we call working women. They were hookers, and they were wor- and this was in South Providence. And we were w- rehearsing in this old factory building, and in these old factory buildings, because of the old wiring back then, back in the nineteen early nineteen seventies, this mm-hmm. was. You could hear um, radio signals from stuff like police reports. And we heard a police signal and the police were going over to their address to pick them up. And uh, so we, we yelled across the street to these women to come on over to our rehearsal and they could sit down and drink a beer. It was the summer. And it was very hot out. They could avoid getting arrested for no apparent reason, but just for the fact that they were, you know, yeah, what, yeah. you know, what the police knew about them. Right. So anyway, um, they came over, and one of them told me I had ruddy cheeks. And we were all looking around to make up fake names for ourselves <laughs> in those days. And uh, so I said, Rudy Cheeks, that's a good name. I think I'll call myself that. And I thought that would last for, like, you know, who knows, for this band, you know, yeah, yeah. for a couple of years. But as it turns out, it's been my name ever since. Well, since this is mostly a, a show about rock and roll, tell yeah. me about your influences growing up. Well, I liked blues stuff. I liked, uh, uh, I'll tell you, a big influence on me was uh, Mose Allison. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, now when I was a little kid, I was, uh, I heard, uh, listened to Phil Harris. He was the band leader for uh, Jack Benny, I think. My father had Phil Harris records, and I used to listen to them when I was a kid and when I was really young, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I guess he would be a real early influence, you know, because he did funny stuff. Minnie the Mermaid and uh, uh, Look Out Stranger, I'm a Texas Ranger. And, uh, you know, he, he did funny songs and he um, he was on the radio and then on TV. Yep. Uh, not too much, mostly radio. He was an earlier guy. But nicotine slaves are all the same. At a patent party or a poker game, everything must stop while they smoke that cigarette. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. Puff, 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 and if you smoke yourself to death, tell St. Peter at the Golden Gate that you hate to make him wait, but you've just got to have another cigarette. Smoke, smoke, smoke. Because you got to remember, when I was a little kid, TV was just coming in. Sure. When I was young, and uh, I, you know, I didn't start seeing TV. I, I wasn't even a big TV fan, but I was. I didn't even watch TV a lot, but I did start watching it when I was a little kid. You know, we watched uh, Howdy Doody on Saturday mornings and stuff like that. Right. There wasn't a lot of children's programming in those days. This is long before. Um, it was before Captain Kangaroo. 
who grew out of Howdy Doody because Captain Kangaroo, Bob Keeshan, was played... Uh, Clarabelle, right? Was Cla- Clarabelle, correct, yeah. on, uh, on Howdy Doody, yeah. So this is long before, like, really good stuff like Sesame Street. So. Mm-hmm. Radio was huge, and rock and roll was coming up at that time. Um, were you listening to guys, some of the local guys, like Chuck Stevens? I think he was Yeah, the, uh, yeah, Chuck, yeah, I knew Chuck, yeah. Since I worked in radio, I, I went to some events, and I knew Chuck. Chuck was the first big rock and roll disc jockey, I guess. Sure. He, he openly hated Elvis on his radio show. He used to talk about how much he disliked Elvis Presley, so, you know. He'd say, good night, Elvis, whatever you are, or something like that. Wasn't that his- yeah, I don't remember all that, but I do, I do remember Chuck, and I remember meeting him, and, you know, and having dinner with him once. There was a dinner for Salty Brian on the USS Massachusetts in Battleship Cove. Yep. They had a, there was a di- it was a big radio dinner for him, and I sat with Chuck and this other guy, Bobby Harrison, who was a famous radio, uh, he was an ad- advertising guy in radio. And I knew Bobby real well, and I had met Chuck. They asked me to sit with him, and I, and I ended up sitting with him. So, yeah, I, I remember Chuck, yeah. Throughout the 60s, you probably listened to the pop music. Were you listening to, were you more of a Beatles guy? Were you a Dylan person? Um, I, well, I wasn't, I don't know. I, in the 60s, I was listening to a lot of the Bob Dylan. And then, and then, as I said, I started listening to, about that time, I started listening to jazz and blues. I listened to a lot of Mose Allison, as I said. Mm-hmm. He was a, I was a big fan of his. I also ended up meeting Mose a number of times uh, over the years. Didn't he write Young Man Blues? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, a young man ain't nothing in this world these days. I said, a young man ain't nothing in this world these days. Now, talk to me a little bit about how you formed a band fabulous motels were the first band that was in yeah well yeah. yeah that was kind of that was left over from a thing we had done we had done this like kind of art show called polaroid sausage that i was involved with with a bunch of people from RISD who also happened to be musicians that was what came of that and we morphed into the fabulous motels as a band and that was a name we came up with that name as a it was something that everybody could agree to it was uh, you know it was not it was not like a great name as far as I was concerned. Uh, and that was about 1970 that that happened. Polaroid Sausage happened and then that morphed into the Fabulous Motels. And that was me and Dave Hansen, a.k.a. Sport Fisher, and Charles Rocket, and, and there was a bunch of other people involved in it. They were all mostly artists who also had a musical abilities um, and they all knew me and they knew that, you know, I was, you know, involved in a lot of the same stuff they were. And so I don't know. That's the best way to tell the story. I were guess. you playing anyway, sax for that band? Or? What? No, I wasn't playing sax. I just, I learned how to play uh, harmonica. I taught myself harmonica and then I got a, a clarinet and I was teaching myself clarinet, and from that I moved into saxophones. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm self-taught on all instruments. I, I never had a lesson or anything, so. You're a hell of a vocalist, too. Well, thanks. How did that yeah. morph into the young adults? Well, it was a few years after that. The Fabulous Motels happened from about 1970 to about 73. Mm-hmm. Then I moved 
down to Newport, not, and I was no longer in Providence anymore. And I never drove, so it was hard for me to get back and forth anywhere. So what happened was uh, the fabulous motels broke up, and uh, when that ha- that happened, that that was that sparked the um, the interest of uh, David Byrne, who was uh, a friend of ours and who wanted to try out for what the remnants of that was. Charlie Rocket and uh, Jeff Shore, who is a piano player we're trying to start up a band and David tried out for guitar, but he didn't get the job. And so after that, um, he decided to move to New York and he started a band there because he wasn't going to get into, you know, the band that he, you know, he wanted to be in this other, yeah. this new starting band, which was Charlie and Jeff, which yeah. was the remnants of the fabulous motels. Right. Talking heads was starting right around the same time as the, as the young adults which was about 1975, mm-hmm. 74, 75, yeah. And, and Charlie uh, Rocket, now he went on to be on the first season of Saturday Night Live after, after uh, Ready the for Primetime Players, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. In 1980, he was on the, he was, yeah, he did Weekend Update on the 1980 right. uh, season of uh, Saturday Night Live, yeah. Right. Yeah, Charlie was an amazing talent. Saturday. Comedy and musical, yeah. too. Oh, Most yeah. people didn't know about his musical stuff, although, you know, he played the accordion. Yeah. So. I've been watching some clips of the young adults. I don't want to say it's comedy, because it's not comedy. It's it's real rock and roll with a very dry, sarcastic sometimes sense of humor. Kind of reminds me of what Flo and Eddie were doing. Not derivative, but in that same vein. Would you agree? Or? Um, I don't know. I wasn't really that familiar with Flo and Eddie. I, I knew who they were, you know, yeah, obviously. Yeah. I knew that they came out of Frank Zappa. Right. Well, they came like, I was never a big Frank Zappa. I, I, I liked Frank Zappa. I liked the Mothers of Invention anyway. Yeah. That was more of a Captain Beefheart fan. Oh, yeah. I liked, yeah, Don, Don Van Vliet, who, who I actually met and was a very nice guy. But I, I loved the way he sang. I wish I could sing like him. He had a very deep voice and a wide range. Yeah, you know yeah. that was. You know, I mean, that was. He naturally had that voice. That was a great voice. He also could sound like an animal to me at times. <laughs> That's what I liked. Yeah, I wish I could do that. You know, the animal part of being a human. You know, but anyway. So Don and Don played like me. Played harmonica and uh, and uh, horns and saxophones. You know. You guys do a lot of recording as the young adults? No, we didn't do a lot of recording. No, no I wish we had done more. No, we mostly played gigs and, and, and made money. We we needed to make money. Sure. Because we made because that's how we all made our living. Well, talk about the circuit back then. What was it like? Were you playing mostly colleges? Was it clubs? Well, uh, we played a lot of clubs, but we played clubs all over New England. We played in Boston a lot, Boston, Cambridge, and we also played in Connecticut, and we played... Uh, the only places uh, the young adults played in Rhode Island, for the most part, were uh, Lupo's and Harpo's down in Newport. Uh, we we do a one-off gig here and there at other places, and so I don't know if there, I wouldn't say what a circuit. I don't know if there was what kind of a circuit it was. I mean, in Providence, there was you know the Met, Lupo's, and uh, the Living Room. Mm-hmm. That and everybody tried to play at one of those places because. Because you wanted to play in Providence because it was central, you know? Sure. Tell me how you came about working with uh, Bo Diddley on that film, Cobra oh, State Oh, Lupo Nectar. called us up. We were playing, we played a lot at Lupo's. We had a good following, and uh, and Rich was, uh, you know, 
this was the first, you know, major rock and roll guy that he had tried to hire. And um, he asked us to be the backup band to play an opening set and then back Bo up. Because mm-hmm. that's how Bo and Chuck Berry did things, you know. Sure. And uh, so what we did was uh, we got, we in, we went in there, and of course Lupo insisted that there be a rehearsal, and you know we wanted to do a rehearsal too because we wanted because you know sometimes they would they would just uh, these guys would you know Bruce Springsteen went through the same thing with the with his bands you know they used to back up Chuck Berry and stuff too right and they would. Uh, they would have to do a rehearsal, and they would, uh, and they would you'd do, play all you know Chuck songs or all Bo songs. That's how you did it. And so what happened with with Bo is that we, um, you know, we met him at Lupo's one afternoon when he came in, and we uh, he just started playing. He didn't even call out the songs. We just we just fell in. He didn't call out the keys or the songs. And he, luckily, Jeff Shore, our piano player, had perfect pitch, and he could tell what key we were playing in right away. Who decided to film the whole thing and release it as a? Uh... That was uh, that was Jim Wolpa, who was uh, a bartender at Lupo's and Rich Lupo's a good friend from Brown University. Uh, Rich produced the movie Cobra Snake for a Necktie is the name of the movie. Right. So yeah, so he decided to do a you know to a documentary about Bo Diddley, and he got Bo to sign on to it and us to sign on to it. I used to have a sixteen millimeter print of that, but I don't anymore. It's it's on YouTube. I know not. it's on YouTube. Yeah, it's yeah. great. I we, can't remember who put it up on YouTube. I think Ed Valley did, but I'm not sure. Or some somebody put it up on YouTube. Yeah, it's it's, it's a compelling performance. My personal it was, favorite. It was, it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. You know, you know, it, Jim edited it in such a way that he has some of us doing our s- stuff. Right. And our uh, and then he has us playing with Bo. That was we also we also did it during that time period. Yeah, when we were doing that, we did uh, we played two years in a row, and the first year it was 1977 and 78, I believe. In 1977, we did a show at the uh, Men's Maximum at the ACI. That was an amazing show. Wow. I'll tell you, tough gig. Well, not really. It was a great audience. I mean, you know, people who've been in prison. You know, there. Uh, I mean, you can ask Johnny Cash yeah. about this, I guess, because <laughs> right. you know, Folsom Prison Blues and all this other other people who, you know, when you're shooting, when that's your audience, are people who are incarcerated. They're a great audience. I mean, they tend not to walk out on you. Well, they can't really <laughs> walk out on you. Bump, bump, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I watched a couple episodes. Speaking of things on YouTube, of a uh, very interesting cable show you did. Club Genius. Club Genius. Yeah, that was that was in the early 1980s. We first got cable TV. There was a what you call it. There was an element where you could do your own. Pro- in fact, it was insisted upon by a number of people who were advocates for uh, public access. It was called. I was one of those people who was an advocate for public access. And there was a guy named. Uh, he's still around. You know, Manug Caprillion. And Manu was uh, was put in charge of uh, Cox Cable's cable operation. He was also a very big supporter of public access. And so Manu had a very, very healthy public access. He called me up and asked me if I wanted to do a show. And that's where Club Genius came from. So I called my friend Tommy Zorabedian. And Tom Zorabedian and I produced 
well, it was Tommy did most of the producing. I was mostly the host, and and we we made it up as we went along. But that's what Club Genius was. Yeah, yeah. It was a much, bunch of people, a bunch of artists who were good friends of mine who worked on that show. Benita Flanders was a very key member of that crew. How long did that run for? That run ran for I think two or three years. It was uh, nineteen. 82 to 84. I have, I have a bunch of DVDs. I had a friend of mine, uh, Sharon Turgeon, uh, ended up uh, putting them up on YouTube when YouTube was first starting out, yeah. putting up so, some of the shows. And yeah, I watched putting them on YouTube. Them. So that's what you've seen on YouTube. They're fantastic. Yeah. And uh, in, in those days, when we first did the show, it could only be seen in Cranston and Johnston because it was that local Cox affiliate. The whole structure of cable changed with time. Sure. And the early days, it was all, you know, all the different towns and cities had their own operations. And some of them were owned by, you know, Cox had some of them. And then there were other companies, too. The other day, you told me a great story about being in New York City with Doc Palmas. Doc was, uh, had produced Roomful of Blues' uh, first couple albums. Doc and Joel um, Dorn were the co-producers of uh, the first two Roomful of Blues albums, so that's how I met Doc. Mm -hmm. And Doc became would come down to would come to Lupo's to see Roomful or to see the young adults too. He became a after he saw us, he became a fan of ours too, and a big supporter, a very good guy. So he would he would he would get in this van because he was in a wheelchair. So he would he'd have his van driver drive him to Providence and, you know, come to a young adult show. So he would come to some of those. And he lived on 72nd Street near Columbus Circle. And whenever I was, we were in New York, the young adults, we played at a club called Tracks, which was, on, which was right there in Columbus Circle on 72nd Street in New York. And uh, Doc's apartment was right across the street. So I would... I would visit him at his apartment whenever we were in New York. That, that, that was an amazing apartment. And there's also some funny stories. That the person who has the best stories about Doc's apartment in uh, New York was uh, uh, Mac Rebenack, uh, Dr. John. Dr. John, know? yeah. Mac used to, Mac used to be... Um, Used to be the bartender when at uh, when when Doc would have all his gambler friends over to play cards up at his apartment. Mac would be the bartender at these poker parties. Yeah, and uh, he had some good. He told me some very very funny stories. He and Doc were really close. They wrote a few songs together and everything. Every time I would see Mac Rebenack, we'd tell Doc Palmer stories to each other. I'd tell him stories, of, you know, my experiences with Doc, and he had a lot. He had even more extensive experiences, obviously. The story you told me the other day about how he came to write "Save the Last Dance" for me—that's a oh yeah, yeah, story. oh the, yeah. Well, that's pretty, pretty fairly well known. There's a film called AKA Doc Palmer, which is a, it's just kind of a film about Doc's life. And this is in that film, but I knew the story before that, which is that Doc wrote the song Save the Last Dance for Me on a napkin at, at his wedding reception. And uh, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heartfelt song that he was writing to his, who, to his wife, who they were getting married, he said, but save the last dance for me. But, you know, don't forget who's taking you home. Yeah. You know, yeah, who's you know, know the song, seat. yeah. Sure. Cause don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're gonna be. 
so dark Say the last dance for me Well, we talked a little bit about radio, and I got to tell you from a personal point of view, there were many a morning going off to school that I listened to a certain Rudy Cheeks and Carolyn Fox on WHJY. Yeah. Tell me how you came to get yourself into radio. Well, once again, somebody called me up. Ron St. Pierre called me up. He was the program director at WHJJ at the time, Yep. And, which was, you know, this, the AM sister station of HJY. And he asked me if I wanted to do a talk show. And I said, yeah, I was interested in doing that. Carolyn approached me once I was in the building and uh, asked me if I would, because she knew me, because uh, I'd known her since she was in high school. And she, um, she, uh, she was 10 years younger than me. Mm-hmm. She asked me to write for her and uh, you know, write material for her radio show. And I agreed to do it. But then the, the the program director, who was a guy from Australia at the time, over at HJY, his name was Ian. Ian decided that I should be her on-air partner. So everybody went for that, the owners of the station and everything. They all thought that was a good idea. So, you know, it meant a big jump in pay for me. So I said, okay, I'll do that. The uh, talk show also was kind of winding down at that time because I was not getting huge ratings. Because talk radio is mostly about politics, and I wasn't really interested that interested in talking politics all the time. I wanted to do like a more culturally oriented show, and I wanted sure. to have more to do with you know music and other cultural stuff. I wanted to have artists on as guests, not like the lieutenant governor, you know, stuff like that. Right, right. But nobody wanted to go with my. I mean, I was not about to start. People were not going to let me run radio, you know. So right. there you go. Yeah, that's how I got involved with radio. I got asked. I think you're going to probably answer the same way. You were asked, but I'm going to ask you anyways. Uh, The movie. Complex Complex World. World. Yeah, that was, uh, well, we had uh, me and uh, Les Daniels, who is a writer and a good friend. Les and and me and Jim Wolpaw, the movie director, had written, had created this uh, nightclub act that I was doing called Comediac. You know, it's mostly me, but those guys were deeply involved too. Well, G- Jim Wolpaw ran the club that we first did it in. But anyway, uh, when we're doing this, com- we decided to do a movie so Jim could, Jim was going to direct it. It was called Comediac the Motion Picture. And the way these things work is th- things morph into other stuff. The Complex World movie started out as Comediac, the motion picture, where I played the worst stand-up comic in the world. And, uh, you know, Les and I pretty much uh, wrote the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Wilpaw was going to direct it. What happened was is that um, Jim got some other ideas after we did that. He never finished editing Comediac, the motion picture, which always bothered Les. And me, too, to a certain extent. Sure. But anyway, he came up with this other script. But some of the stuff that's in the complex world motion picture actually occurs in Comediac the motion picture. So so it was, it was definitely it was born out of Comediac, the, uh, the whole, um, whole complex world movie. Sure. So anyway, so Jim, Jim wrote a new script. And I got a phone call from Rich Lupo, who's going to back the whole thing financially so we could shoot the movie. And they didn't have a name for it at the time, 
But he said, the young adults have got to be in it. That's all. And that turned into, you know, complex world. I don't know if you knew this. This is another thing that's interesting, because if this had happened, this would have made it even cooler for the young adults. Yeah. You know, since we had one movie named after a young adult song, Complex World, the uh, the original movie, Dumb and Dumber, the the working title of that was A Power Tool is Not a Toy, which is another young that's adult right. song. Yep. The film company that uh, I think was New Line Cinema that that was made with, uh, told Peter and Bobby Farrell they couldn't call it that because it was it was not a good name for a movie because he didn't get an idea of what the film was about. Right. And you know, and so they went with Plan B, which was Dumb and Dumber. But you so, did get a special credit. Thank you well, at the end of the well, movie. At the, yeah, yeah, at the end of Dumb and Dumber, you'll see my name in the credits. That's Dumb right. A special thanks to Rudy Cheeks at the end of Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, I'm in there. Yeah. Oh, how cool is that? But that's about it. But it's just Rudy Cheeks, not the young adults, just Rudy Cheeks. Right. Which is all very interesting because both A Power Tool is Not a Toy and Complex World were both written by Sport, by uh, Dave Hansen, not by me. I, you know, I've been given credit for all sorts of stuff that I haven't, that I didn't really do because it was in a band that I was in or something. So all this stuff gets all confused after a while. But I always try to straighten out the history of all this stuff. When the truth isn't as good as the myth, print the myth. Yeah, yeah, the man who shot Liberty Valance. I know that <laughs> quote, yeah. Yes. About a week ago, Bobby Jones had him a beer for lunch. And when he came back on the job, you know he was a little drunk He said, look at the way my new skills all ripped through this wood The next thing we knew, Bobby's thumb was gone for good The guy next door's got a shop in his cellar It's his pride and joy he loves that workshop almost as much as his wife and little boy But one day he didn't lock the door and little Jimmy started fooling around in there Now the neighborhood little E.T. short a player Cause us all don't know the difference between a man and a piece of pine one mistake is all it takes And folks just end up crying A million tears won't bring back your fingers They won't bring back your little boy So remember, a power tool is not a toy Some hippies were clearing land up north to build a commune and they'd been tripping on LSD all afternoon One of them got his long hair caught in a chainsaw blade His mind left his body the hard way Cause I saw I don't know the difference between a man and a piece of pine One mistake is all it takes and folks just Tears won't bring back your fingers 
they won't bring back your little boy. So remember, a power to live, not a toy. The young adults right there asking the musical question, a Powell Tool's not a toy? Some great song. Excellent stuff. I mean, we want to thank, once again, Rudy Cheeks for uh, spending a little time on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. You know, Dave, I mentioned a little bit about uh, how we're all stuck at home. One of the many music-related consequences is that this year's uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony's been postponed. I think they're going to yeah. do it at the end of the year. Just going down some of the list, I'm finally pleased to see that T-Rex is getting in there. Oh, good. And a few other bands. But the ones who are still, after how many years they've been doing this? They started in 88, I want to say. 87. There are some snubs that are just sinful. Warren Zevon has not been. Are you serious? Yeah. That is absolutely ridiculous. Um, And I have to assume that there is some political reason that he's not in because talk about someone who should be an absolute shoe in from the moment go well can i can i share my top two with you please yeah uh so uh the monkeys and uh, mm. the monkeys are are sometimes a uh, uh for some people are unfortunately a punchline uh that music is no joke no. and uh, the idea that they didn't necessarily write or uh, even play instruments on their first couple of albums neither did the supremes people Uh, and those albums are absolutely classics of not just power pop but man i mean they covered so much ground with the wrecking crew as their their, well uh, let me let me play devil's advocate the supremes never claimed to be musicians what does that matter because i think at that time and i mean now today i don't think anybody would find any fault with at all because the kids aren't in that mindset but back then it meant something to be a songwriter a musician and here are these guys pretending to be to the point where they themselves at least a few of the members started feeling stifled by what don kirshner was forcing them to do and they broke away from them and 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 ended up recording under their own power under their own steam starting from their third album yeah so i well i have two rebuttals to that yeah because this is this is an important thing to me. Number sure. one is that uh, the monkeys, and this is going to sound absolutely insane to you, but the monkeys, I would, uh, I would conjecture, influenced as many or more people in, let's say, uh, starting starting from when the reruns uh, became uh, ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, obviously for me as one of the reasons that I'm talking about it I will tell you that I came to the music of the monkeys before the Beatles and I know that sounds ridiculous but growing up as a kid in Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. where uh, monkeys reruns were on literally every day after school at 3 p.m. and the Beatles were on the radio less at that point because we'd gotten a little bit out of that era and so the monkeys were an incredible influence on me so that's number one. I think that you need to bring into account their their societal impact in that sense. And whether you think that you know a TV show about a, a made-up band uh, should be considered as something influential, it doesn't really matter. It, it was. Well, don't get me wrong. I love the Monkees. One of my favorite albums is 
Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, Jones. Amazing. Amazing record. From start to finish. Uh, got some songs written. One uh, Harry Nelson wrote a track on there. Was it Cuddly Toy? Uh, he, Cuddly Toy is on that one. Absolutely. Uh, and, I believe Pleasant Valley Sunday is on that one. Yep. And uh, the opening track, Salesman. I, Salesman, I love the Mike, the Mike, Mike, Mike Nesmith. Nesmith stuff. Mike Nesmith does not get enough credit for being the precursor to that entire um, California. Well, so this rocks. was my point number two, Don. You're right there. Mike Nesmith uh, is one of the pioneers. Pioneers of country rock. Yep. Have He's, you heard the first uh, few albums that he made after the Monkees? Sure. Uh, you know, Magnetic South and and uh, the stuff with the first national band. He was creating country rock and part of the blueprint that uh, that the Eagles. Uh, followed and uh, flying I burrito think, brothers of course uh, yes absolutely rick, rick nelson stone yeah. canyon band that whole scene is you know he was one of the first yes a great great songwriter in his own right don't anyone misunderstand my point i love the monkeys only thing that always bothered me was how they came to be um it's it, that's the only problem you've convinced me dave that's it yeah you did it <laughs> This is great podcast material, by the way. Let's take 10 minutes to talk about why the monkey should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame while everyone shuts off their computer. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of shutting off computers, Dave, it's time to say goodbye, but I definitely want to thank you for being on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Don, this has been great. I appreciate you having me here so much. And I'd like to make a quick plug for the album that I have coming out with Please. my students. Yeah, we're making a, a record... Um, by distance, because uh, none of us can be together to record it. But uh, uh, the account is Mount Hope Music. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Music and Google Play everywhere. Uh, the album's going to be called From the Inside Out. And there's some original music. There's a bunch of, of covers of old, uh, like really old songs that we've rearranged. It's super great. I couldn't be more proud of them. And it'll be out June 13th. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thanks, uh, Tom. Thank you, Dave, and see you all again at the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Maybe if I concentrate, focus on one spot, the walls might fall around me, release me from this cell. Maybe I can laugh it off, she's humored me before. Clouds might smile and grant us a sunnier farewell. This isn't how I hoped my life would be. She gave me my freedom. She gave me her word. She gave as good as she got. Peace.